The Cannabis Is Me Podcast, episode 83. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. This is your host, Rachel Kennerly, coming to you once again from the Storybook in Studios. I'm glad to be here on a Thursday presenting an educational episode to you. If you listened to last episode on Monday, I said that I'm going to try and start doing these weekly educational episodes again. I found somebody on Fiverr that's gonna, that edits my podcast pretty inexpensively, and so I, I can't justify spending five hours editing when I can send it to this person and they do it for, you know, a, a, like I said, a very reasonable rate. So... With that said, that frees me up a, a lot of time to continue doing my homeschool stuff with my son, and maybe we can get back in the routine of doing these weekly educational episodes, because I, I don't know about y'all, but I really enjoy them. I like talking about things like jury nullification, civil asset forfeiture, things that I never learned about in high school, things that I should have learned about in high school that directly affect me, and my ability to be a good citizen in the United States, but never was taught this because the government's not going to equip us with this information. So hopefully we can get back on track doing these weekly educational episodes, at least, you know, maybe do at least three a week, uh, three a month. So I I don't want to commit to having two episodes every week, but hopefully maybe we can get back in the routine. Now, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, regardless of when it gets published, you need to go out on your podcast app and subscribe to the podcast. You just go out to the podcast app, and there should be a little button out there that says subscribe. You click that, and then your podcast app will automatically download the show to your phone, to your tablet, to your computer, wherever it is that you consume the podcast. It'll automatically download there. You also need to go out and subscribe to our email newsletter list. If you go to CannabisHillsMe.com slash subscribe, we try to send out an email before each episode. And to be honest with you, I'm not that great about that, but I'm trying to get better. So at the most, you'll get two or three emails a week from me. So we're not going to flood your inbox with a bunch of spam and unrelated things. But the email newsletter list gives us a way to contact you directly to let you know, hey, another episode's out. It's about to come out. Or get in touch with you if we find that there is an issue that is pressing and important, and we want to make sure that we are able to get that information to you in a timely fashion. Because if you're like me, you have a bajillion Facebook friends, you like a bajillion pages, and you don't see 99% of what gets posted on Facebook because there's just so much stuff coming out. So if you go out and subscribe to the email newsletter list, you'll make sure that you don't miss any important information. Go out to CannabisHillsMe.com slash subscribe. Our guest today is David Gernoski. David is the host of A Neighbor's Choice Radio and a podcast called Things Hidden. He's written articles for Daily Caller, Town Hall, American Conservative, and Fee, F-E-E. He's well-versed on a host of topics, but he's going to join us today and talk about Rene Girard's mimetic theory and the scapegoat mechanism. Now, I'm sure you're all asking yourselves, what the heck does this have to do with cannabis? I think we all know what a scapegoat is, a person or group of people who bear the blame for others. 
And I found that people who use or abuse drugs are often scapegoated. Drug users or abusers are often seen as a blight on an otherwise purportedly perfect society. They're looked at as the cause of all the community's problems as opposed to a symptom of underlying systemic problems. I've seen this in my own life. There's a local Facebook page and people on there are always railing against drug users, citing drugs as the problem in the county, crime, unemployment. Everything is caused by these drug users. And in fact, we've actually seen this on a larger scale. In the wake of the September 11th attacks, President George W. Bush even made statements that people who use drugs support the war on terror. According to Bush, quote, if you quit drugs, you join the fight against terrorism. So now drug users are material supporters of terrorism. Talk about a prime example of scapegoating. So David is going to join us today and talk about some of the underlying anthropological roots of scapegoating and mimetic theory. Hey, David. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well about yourself. Okay, yeah. Thanks for having the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you taking time to talk to us about mimetic theory and the scapegoat mechanism. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind briefly, and I know it's hard to be brief because it's such a big subject, kind of explain mimetic theory and then scapegoating and then maybe how we scapegoat people who have drug addictions or do things that we don't approve of. Yeah. Well, the, the oldest story of mankind that we know of in terms of ancient mythology and ancient storytelling has to do with the one and the many. There's one person, there's many people. How do you resolve the one person versus the many? So every mythology, you'll always see a God and then he creates the whole world or there's different gods and they're fighting over who's going to be the one supreme God. So you always have this big battle between the collective and the one. And that story is uh, something that uh, is, is a pale, it's a shadow imitation kind of, of, of what is written in our hearts. We desire, we desire community. We desire our, also our own individual sense of self. Mimetic theory is an, is a, theory of social sciences developed by a late anthropologist named Rene Girard, who was a, he last taught at Stanford University, and he was a member of the French Academy. He was a, a Christian, but he became a Christian first be, because he'd studied the Bible, and he became intellectually converted to the Bible's truth and wisdom before he had a spiritual conversion. So he was, he was moved by the logic and reason and and amazing scientific knowledge that he was finding in the Bible, and then and then that led to a spiritual conversion too. A lot of sometimes that happens the opposite for people. They have a spiritual emotional response to the story of Jesus, and then they later on find logical or evidence for why they should keep believing. I think that's interesting that he was converted on an intellectual level before a spiritual level because. You know, so many people dismiss Christianity as as mythology and frou-frou, and there's no logic. You just have to check your logic and reasoning at the door and just accept this because the Bible says so. That's true. You know, but, but, you know the Bible helps us become, it's just kind of a paradox, right? And that's, it's hard to kind of put this into language, but you got to kind of just kind of dance with the Bible to figure it out. Because it, it, the only way to become a true individual is to realize that you're not an individual, that you're a sheep. <laughs> That's the point, right? You know, it's all we like sheep have gone astray. Mm -hmm. Each sheep thinks they're in charge of their own movements as they're pl plotting right behind the other sheep, you know? 
They don't realize, you know, that's how a sheep gets led astray. He's following someone else mindlessly, not knowing that they're going to fall off a cliff or go into the danger, right? So, so, so they, so, you know, sheep, you know, they're not thinking about, you know, what they're doing. They're just mimicking. They're just imitating the, the herd guy in front of him and they go off into a danger zone. And then that's how humans are. You know, we, that's how the Bible talks about humans. Humans don't realize they're sheep. They, they think they're going on to their own. That's why it says they, they all we like sheep have gone astray each into our own way. Well, sheep doesn't go off on its own path. It doesn't look around and say, I'm going to go that way. I'm going to go that way. It just plods along blindly imitating the, the, the patterns of those around them. And so in order for you to understand how we're lost, you have to first understand that so much of what we do and desire and want are, are copies of things that we get from other people around us, just like a sheep. That's how we go astray. We, we imitate other people, not knowing that we're imitating them, because we pick it up almost like a contagious feeling. You know, uh, you go into a room and everybody's aggressive energy, and all of a sudden you feel aggression. You go into a room and everybody's loving and happy. You feel that. Uh, mm -hmm. You go into a car sales deal and, and the guy just hit, he smiles and does everything right. But there's just a bad energy you feel. You just, I don't know what that is. It's just something I don't feel good about this deal. Something's not getting me. That's part of this whole, this, this, uh, it's almost like a magnetic attraction that we have uh, to, to people that we can feel them on a more subconscious level. But this has to do with how God designed us. We're very, very dependent on other people, right? You know, you know, one of the problems I have with libertarian I, I, I work is that it doesn't account for how humans become human. You know, we don't pop out as little rugged individuals. You know, when you're a baby, you're completely dependent on, on others for your existence and yourself, right? The way you smile, uh, the things you like, the colors you like, everything is, is, is dependent on other people coming along and, and, your, and your parents and siblings and so forth coming in and constructing the world around you and, and the things they like, you like, and the things your older siblings like, you want to do. And, and so that's how we come. We don't, we don't pop out as little indiv individualists. You know what I mean? Right. The, Bible, the Bible's talking about that. It's talking about the idea that, you know, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're blind to what makes you you, then you'll be a slave to the passions when those passions start copying bad role models and start driving you into making poor choices, you know? So, so Girard's theory says that we, we mimic, we imitate the desires of our neighbor. Uh, most people think that they want a beautiful brand new car because they just think it's great. They don't realize that actually you're, you're getting it because it's a, it's a status symbol for showing that you have arrived to a certain level of echelon that other people you see in the community have and you want them to know that you're on their lead. You know what I mean? And, and, that's, and that's what we, so that's how we, we choose things based on what we perceive other people thinking of us once we have that. We want to be like other people. So we, we have these role models in our lives and, and we, we either consciously imitate them or we unconsciously imitate them, but we're always like a sponge, just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. And so that old wisdom that our grandparents taught us, stay away. And our parents taught us, be careful about peer pressure. Yeah. Be careful about what crowd you hang out with is so fundamental to understanding the Bible, you know? 
So, so the, the mimetic theory is saying that we copy and we, we covet. And that, that's where you get that 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's everything, right? It talks about this, that, this, this, and everything else that belongs to the neighbor. So the emphasis is on the neighbor. It's actually the neighbor you want to be like. You want to be like your neighbor. You, want, you, you, you look at your neighbor and you say, that person, they're not as rich as me, but they have such a quality of life. What are they doing? Oh, they've got a place in Hawaii. That's what I need to do. Or you say, <laughs> You know, you know, there's something about that person in my job that uh, they, they seem to get all the uh, love and attention from the office workplace. What are they doing need to do? And so you kind of unconsciously mimic that. Or, you know, there's a book you read about a character, you know, uh, Don Quixote. He, he was reading those books about King Arthur. He wanted to be like King Arthur. So he would dress up in a knight's armor and Don Quixote, and he would run out fighting against windmills, thinking that they're dragons. And so he was mimicking, you know, his hero. Now, what Gerard said is there's two types of models that we imitate. There's external models, which is what Don Quixote is imitating. He's imitating a King Arthur character. It's not, he's not going to ever see King Arthur. It's, it's far away. And then there's another type of model called an internal model. Internal model is someone that's within your sphere of influence, someone that you feel you could actually beat or, 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 or catch up to. Yeah. And so internal models is, uh, you know, where we get more oftentimes into conflict. It's not, it's not dissimilarity that breeds conflict. It's actually similarity that breeds conflict. And you can see that illustrated with the little, the childhood playground game called copycat, where the kid just keeps saying everything you say, you know, it'll make you feel like you're losing your mind. You know, it'll turn the most rational adult who thinks they're above all child games, driving and the kid just mimics them over and over everything they say, yes. and they don't stop. That makes yes. you feel like you're losing your sense of mind. That, that's because similarity is what breeds conflict. It's what makes us go nuts the most. <laughs> and then, you know, and then that's, that's what happens in the workplace. You know, we all want people to imitate us up to the point where they're going to replace us, you know? So, you know, we all want people to do, you know, if there's something special about us, I'm the best mechanic anybody's ever known. And then there's, you know, you've done it your whole life. And then all of a sudden you hire a young person and they say, I want to learn from you. And then one day they learn and they actually are getting more accolades for their work than you are. And mm -hmm. customers are saying, you know, that young guy you hired, he's done way better work than you did. All of a sudden that's going to make you jealous. And you're going to say, wait a second, I liked you imitating me, but now you're replacing my sense of self, who I was. I was known as the mechanic guy or I was known as whatever. And now you've lost, you, you've, you've uh, imitated me too much. And now, you, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've supplanted my specialness in the world. And so, what, but, but, you know, what we do is, is we don't want to face that face to face. And so we always, we always make excuses, well, that, that try to justify why we feel aggressive towards that, that rival. So we amplify the differences to justify, oh, I'm not anything like that person. So you'll notice, you know, like a frenemy or something, a friend who is also an enemy, you know, when you listen to the people squabbling or fighting, they will distinguish so many things that are so distinct from them. There is mm -hmm. nothing like, I am not like that person. He's a this, he's a that, she's a this, she's a that. I am farthest removed from that person. But from a third party's perspective, they look pretty much identical. You know, their, their claims are identical. They're, they're, who started it? Who knows? You know, it's all very undifferentiated from out from a third, from an objective point of view. But inside that conflict, they feel farther apart than ever. And that's what Gerard calls a model obstacle, which happens when we desire and we covet too much 
and we don't, you know, we start, we start getting into kind of a, a, a ping pong of, of uh, one-upmanship trying to best uh, those who we feel are kind of uh, imitating us too much for comfort. And that's what the Bible talks about with, with coveting. Coveting is the idea that, you know, if, if, if you covet, it's not the objects, it's not the donkey that you really want. It's that you're looking to your neighbor for what you should desire. And that is not a negative thing. You can also do that in a positive way. If you mimic your grandmother's recipe for food, that's just perfectly fine. But you see there, there's an external mediation there. There's a, there's a distinction in hierarchy between, well, grandma is the master of this and I'm just their apprentice, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but over time, again, just to use that example again, over time, if your casserole or whatever is 10,000 times better than grandma's over time, grandma might get a little irritated if she's not being, you know, in a positive outlook. Now, most of the time, people who, who are, who are showing love can handle people eclipsing them. But a lot of times we, we don't operate on that. We operate on a more negative, a more negative mimetic desire and mimetic desire just means imitation. It means the reason why Gerard uses the word mimetic instead of imitation is that when we think of imitation, we think of it more on a rote level, like, you know, monkey see monkey do you stick your tongue out. I stick my tongue out. You know, you, you roll your eyes. I roll your eyes that, uh, that I roll my eyes, you know, that that's kind of a more basic level of imitation, but Mm -hmm. mimesis is where you, you're mimicking what you perceive your neighbor desiring. You know, you're, you're looking into their life and you're uh, pulling out motivations. You're pulling out, you know, strategies and agendas that you think they're doing that you need to incorporate into your life to succeed. Yeah. And uh, Jesus is trying to do is to say, look, if you need a model to imitate, just imitate me. So when we talk about worshiping Jesus, Here's what people who are not religious need to understand. You worship no matter what you do. You're going to worship. You have worshiped. You will always worship something or someone. And so when you encounter Jesus, it's not about like, oh, now I got to worship somebody. No, that's the jokes on you. You've been imitating people. You've been mimetically desiring people all your life. And Jesus is just trying to get you to be honest and humble about that and say, hey, look, you know. You've been doing this your whole time. Just mimic me because everything I'm doing is just pure imitation of God. You know, every every other philosopher in history, every economist, every historian, every great, you know, Karl Marx, they always act like they're the originator of everything they said, you know, and that's how they make themselves kind of puff up and create their own little tribe of people wanting to be like them. But Jesus is the only great person in history who says, no, imitate me because everything I do, I imitate from God. And, and those prophets who came before me. So he, he doesn't say that he's saying anything original. And so I say it's kind of ironic that the most original man in history says everything he did, he borrowed from somebody else. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. You see how that, you see how that humbles you when you imitate that guy? <laughs> you see what I mean? Cause it. <laughs> yeah. So where does the, where does the scapegoat come in as far as mimetic theory goes, according to, Gerard. Well, that, that comes into when he started looking. So he first looked at uh, literature to see the patterns of mimetic desire that, that breeds rivalry, that breeds uh, uh, being obsessed with beating our rivals all the time. And then, and, uh, and then he started looking at a bigger picture scale, which is, okay, well, wait a second. If humans are unique in the sense that they 
they mirror aggression and they don't know how to stop it. And how come they still exist? You know, if, if, how do we, how do we, how did we survive? You know, if, if we're the kind of people that, if we're the kind of species that, you know, a wolf, when he beats his rival wolf for the leadership of the pack, you know, he doesn't go and kill everybody that wolf ever knew. You know what I mean? Right. That's what humans do. You know, humans, you kill someone's cousin, they kill your brother. They, then you, they kill, then you kill their family. They kill your whole village. And then the, any survivors of that village massacre, they will want to kill your whole nation for the next 500 years. That's, that's foreign policy. That's world affairs. That's foreign policy. Right. <laughs> so, so, but so, so how, how did we survive that? You know, because we're the only species that does this escalating violence that gets out of control because we mimic each other's aggression and we don't know how to stop. So he, he said, well, there had to be something that we stumbled onto that, that would have resolved that aggression. So he said, you know, well, think about it. If everybody's imitating everybody else and we're all copying each other, we don't really want to w- realize that, then, uh, you know, you've got to be able to channel that imitation into a common enemy or else that bad blood is just going to tear everybody apart. And so, th- so we found a way to resolve our problems by, you know, psychologically hungering and looking towards someone who stood out arbitrarily in a sea of, of, a, of a group of people, whether it's a tribe or a village, whatever you want to call it, that we would look at and say, you know what, I think that person put a spell on us, made us hate each other. You know, I was, I was suspicious of you. But if I think about it, it's really that weird person who's got a disfigurement or the person with a big, big nose and a big, uh, you know, looks like a witch or this person is too short. That's a dwarf. I think he must be cursed by God or this person's too pretty. She must be a demon in disguise. You know, anything you can do that someone stands out in an arbitrary way. Right. And you look at them and you say, I think they caused our problems. And if you can get other people to join you in saying that. And say, yeah, you know, you're right. I think that person is a witch. I think that person did do something that made us all hate each other to a, 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 a awful degree. Uh, they're the problem. They caused this feeling of tension. They caused the plague or the mm-hmm. lack of that we have. Because think about it. If everybody's fighting each other, then you're not efficient at getting food, which means you might run out of food, which means you might have a real crisis on your hand. And so you need to figure out how to stop this. And so you know, food's tight or something that triggers this feeling of aggression. And then you, and then you look and say, I think that person did it. And everybody believes it. Everybody believes it because they copy the same thing everybody else is saying. And so we don't realize that we are really prone to group things. We always want to act like we're, you know, if I was seeing Jesus being persecuted, I would stand up to the crowd. No, you wouldn't. That was the whole point. (laughs) We all run in fear when it's really come down to it. You know, you could have a best friend and you're having dinner with him and all of a sudden a SWAT team comes in in the middle of a restaurant and says, we're arresting this person. You would, you know, you could be your best friend, but you might have a second thought. I don't think I'm going to stand up in the middle of this, you know? Yeah. Oh, goodness. What'd you do? Give me a call. Let me know what happened. Goodness. You know, you kind of back away because that, that, that bystander effect, we want to surrender to what everybody else is doing. If there's a hundred people saying this person's a criminal, I don't know. They know something I don't know. Just go ahead. You know, whatever. I thought you were my best friend. Sorry. You know, and then you get swept away and they get locked up or whatever. And, and, and the same thing goes on with scapegoating is that, you know, you channel that aggression and you say that person is different. This person caused the problem. And so everybody points fingers. First, they're mimicking each other because they're pointing fingers at each other. And then that mimic just shifts towards one direction. 
So they're all pointing fingers in the same direction. They're all mimetically desiring to destroy and blame that person. And when they do that, they kill that person. And that's what Gerard would call a scapegoat mechanism, which means you've, you've now selected someone as the blame to blame. Now you have either killed them or you've banished them from the village or in some uh, cases you've eaten them. That's what that's what that's why they had cannibalism at some of the earliest uh, primitive societies. When we look at archaeological records, it's, mm-hmm. it's a great topic, but why can't we deal with it? We got to deal with these things so we know why we're doing what we're doing today. So that's the root of, of order. Because once you scapegoat someone, now who was your enemy has now become your friend because you partake in a, in a very visceral act of killing someone or banishing them. And then all of a sudden, your problems that you had with your neighbor are dissipate because you're in a much more dramatic act of, of tearing into someone who must have been the tricker or deceiver who's, who's, who's turned everybody into, a, in, in, into this crisis. But here's what happens. As soon as you kill the person, you feel this high, this catharsis. Ah, we did what we had to do. The villain, the monster has been defeated. And so there's all of a sudden an ecstatic, transcendent feeling of, my goodness, that was wonderful. We feel totally saved now. And now you start to think amongst each other, you know, maybe that person was a god. Maybe that was an ancestor who came back to teach us a lesson. Maybe. We need to learn. Maybe that was actually someone beyond human because look how happy we feel. Look how we're all together. And so it resolves the crisis of, of, of out of control uh, envy. And, and it resolves it by channeling all that envy and aggression into one person of destruction. And so that overwhelming relief that people feel over time, they start to tell stories about that. They start to pass it on orally to their descendants, and eventually it's transmitted by text. And that's what we call mythology. Mythology is uh, society's ways of recounting how they made their, their community work and how it functions and what to avoid to, to limit chaos. And that's why all the creation myths, besides the story of, of the Genesis story, which is not a, it's the opposite of this. But almost all creation myths that we see start in chaos, and then order is is is, is maintained, and it'll and it'll say it with weird things like a god, you know, fell on his head and out popped a god, and then that god made the humans. It'll say weird, abstract things like that, and then the modern reader reads that and says, "Oh, they're just telling fairy tales to make themselves feel good about. They're just stupid or something." No, they're not. Those are symbols to represent something that has been transmitted for hundreds and hundreds of years about what you need to do when you have chaos and you need to resolve it. You look for the God, you look for the, you look for the person who's different. You look for the person who looks like everybody can believe is they're guilty and you destroy them. And when you destroy them, it brings you together. And so that's how we always keep our societies functioning is that process of the scapegoat mechanism. Does that make sense? Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot, Neil. I'm just trying to, it's kind of, it is a hard, it's kind of a heavy topic. So I'm trying to give you the full, uh, you know, rundown as quickly as I can. <laughs> well, let me ask this. What, you know, you said that Ger- Gerard, you know, I guess he, in studying, he studied both the Bible and then also other mythology. 
What did he find different about the Bible versus other mythology that he studied? Were there any things that that stuck out to him as, okay, this this Bible is different than this other mythology that we've all read and heard of? Right. Well, what, what he what he saw was that he saw that the Bible was actually exposing what what I just described. And so every other story is written by the winner's crowd, because, again, if you kill if you kill someone to resolve your tension, it's not like let me put it this way. It's not like people know they're doing wrong. They really believe. Here's the thing. to, to, To scapegoat someone is to truly believe they're guilty. You know, and so. You convince, you know, this is why we're amazed that humans do the things they do. They really believe the lies they believe. And because uh, we mimic what we think. That's what I'm trying to see is that we think we actually are just logically processing things. And most of the time we're not. That's kind of the surface thing, what we do. We mimic. Yeah, when you talk about this and people scapegoating people, I, I always think back to the Salem witch trials. Yeah. And, and, we, and looking at it now, we're like, how in the world? Did they kill people? I mean, it was a no-win situation for someone accused of being a witch. If you if you die, you weren't a witch. But if you don't die, you were a witch. You know. Right. Yeah, and they really and a lot of them really believed it. Now, did some people have a little motivation? Otherwise, maybe maybe they had ulterior motives. But by and large, the community, for the most part, agrees that this person truly deserves to get punished. But over time. That, you know, what happens is the mythology is like an abstract symbolic representation of kind of the moral of the story. Whenever things are crazy, whenever there's a crisis, whenever people are having too much bad blood, those are words borrowed from these, these days, those, those ancient times. That bad blood needs to be channeled down to somebody's blood. Somebody's blood needs to be spilled for the remission of sins. That's the sin is the, the jealousy, the envy, the covetousness, the, the aggression, the rivalry, the, the accusations. We need to channel those accusations onto somebody. It's something that we feel. We don't think through it. And so that over time becomes what we call ritual sacrifice, sacrificial religion. That's why every ancient community has ritual human sacrifice at the earliest level, where you go to the Incas, the Aztecs, the Japanese, the Chinese, the ancient Germans, the ancient uh, Nordics, the ancient Mesopotamians, wherever you go, ancient Israelites, they were practicing child or human sacrificial practices. So Mm -hmm. why do they do that? Well, the Bible will show you why. The Bible says that when you don't follow the way of Jesus, if you don't follow the way of God, then you're going to desire your neighbors. It's going to create a crisis of, of aggression and envy and, and bad uh, bad patterns of behavior. And that's going to stir up a community to the point where they're going to look for someone to, to channel that pain onto, and then they're going to kill someone who's innocent. So in all the Bible stories, most of these stories are showing the, the story from the other vantage point. So think of all mythology. If you want to summarize this, you just say, wow, this is a lot, David. You're saying a lot. Well, think of it this way. All mythology is the winners of history having the camera perspectives and filming their story the way they want it to be told. But the Bible is unique. No other story, anthology, like the Bible, takes the camera angle out of the winner's crowd and says, wait a second, let's hear, let's hear from the victim. Uh, I'm going to give the camera to the victim. Now show me what you saw. See that? That's the one in the many. Remember the one in the many, the one in the many. That's the oldest story of philosophy, the oldest story of mankind. 
So it's kind of on the mythology side, it's kind of a might makes right. And then from the Bible's perspective, it flips it and it shows it from the from the position of the underdog. The Bible says fake news. That's fake news. That's what the Bible says. Yeah. The Bible says that's fake news. And every story they tell is a is a news report. Now, whether all these are literal or symbolic stories, don't people need to stop getting distracted by that conversation. The the point is it is divine in the sense that it's revealing something that humans couldn't have figured out on their own. I can tell you that because we're so, we're so controlled by group thing. Once you understand, and this, there's not, this is not just a, a theory here. There's science, there's neuroscience showing that humans are interdependent on each other for desires and sense of self. There's a lot of cutting edge science coming out that's validating this. I mean, mm-hmm. they say newborns can imitate just seconds after birth and stuff. I mean, there's so much that we're just wired to copy. And so we're not, we don't want to wake up to that because we all want to believe we're the little gods, we're the little centers of our own little world, and we come up with our own little ideas, and we just, we just like country music because we just like it, and we just like Star Wars because we just like, you know, we don't want to believe that we're just going along with a lot of people. And there's nothing wrong with going along, but the, the error is to believe that you're not going along, and therefore you're right to do whatever you want to do. And that means get into envy and covetousness. So, so back to the Bible. The Bible is always going to tell the victim story. So think about the story of Joseph. Joseph, Joseph is, is, is he's jealous. His brothers are jealous of him. And so they throw him in a ditch to, to let him die. They're jealous. Gang up on him. So that's the many casting out the one. And then he, it, but it's the, but guess what? The camera angle stays with Joseph. You know, it doesn't write the victim story. If you heard it from the winner's side, the story might've been, we were Joseph's brothers and Joseph had horns and he had two heads or he had a weird monstrous eyes and looked like demon. And one day we just had to stone him or, or one day we just saw him. And then all of a sudden he flew off, off of a cliff and we never saw him again. That's how myth would write that story. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but, but, but the Bible is like a, is a realistic counter report to myth. So it'll say, no, we're going to, we're going to keep that camera on Joseph. Let's see what he thinks. Let's see how he feels. And so then, you go to Egypt. And again, someone falsely accuses him, this time saying, you know, you've assaulted me. False, fake news. The camera stays with Joseph. No, he's a victim. He's innocent. He didn't do that. And so he's finally vindicated. He gets power. He gets to have his time. But then at the end of the story, his brothers come back. And and Joseph has the opportunity to get revenge on him. And he doesn't. He gives forgiveness. He could strike back and mirror. He could mimetically imitate the wrongdoing that his brothers did to him, but instead he says, no, I forgive you. I love you. That's the power of the of, of story of the gospels, but it's so unique that it had to be something beyond what we could have come up with because guess what's happening in every other mythology. Meanwhile, the story of Joseph is happening. Meanwhile, when you go to Oedipus Rex, the story of Oedipus Rex, you have a story where the town has a plague, things are tough, Things are in a crisis. Uh-oh, remember I said crisis is when people scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then here's this king. Oedipus comes out, he, and they accuse him of, of incest and parasite, of killing his dad uh, and uh, his parents. And so, so what happens? The story is, he says, I am, I'm guilty. I did all the things you told me that I did, and I'm going to blot my eyes out, and I'm getting out of here. And then when he does that, the town is restored. This is exactly what I just showed the scapegoat mechanism to be, right? But the only way we're able, the only, the only way I or you or anybody else is able to see that 
is because of the Bible. The Bible is a technology that has infected us for 2,000 years. And before that, with the Old Testament, it was infecting their people that encountered it too. And, and it was infecting us to be able to see with better eyes, oh, wait, that's what's happening here. And it gives us discernment, allows us to see true news versus fake news. Mythology in government is, is propagated by fake news. Love and voluntary working our problems out together and mutual respect and confidence, that's the way of the kingdom of God. That's good news. That's what the gospel means, good news. Good news is gospel. Fake news is mythology and statism and all that. And that's the, that's the big battle we're in today. It's so exciting because you can just see these things in the headlines. So how does the scapegoat mechanism, how has that played out in modern times? Well, when Jesus, when, what he did, when he did, when the, so again, let's use that word that I, I like to use, gospel technology. So gospel means good news. So it's media. This is a kind of media. You're telling someone this is what happened. And then it can, you can do media through a, a journal. You can do it through hieroglyphics. You can do it through radio, TV, Facebook, media. That's how we communicate. So good news, the good media, and then the technology. What is technology? It means you're giving something new. You're allowing people to do things they weren't able to do. And so media technology, the gospel technology, is what is happening when the gospel writers record what happened to Jesus. They say he was wrongfully accused. People said that he had violated the taboos of God, but he didn't. And they said that they were doing this in the name of God, but they didn't. And they, and then it says that Pilate and Herod, who were rivals, reconciled. The book of Luke says they were, the gospel of Luke says they were reconciled through the process of dealing with Jesus's trial. And then the crowd who loved him the day before or the week before, now they want to kill him. Kill him, kill him, kill him, crucify him, crucify him. Half the crowd was saying they wanted Rome to be overthrown. And now they're begging Roman's governor, Rome's governor, Pilate, crucify him, kill him. We have no king but Caesar, you know. So they've just switched. Just like Julius Caesar, the play, you know, where uh, one minute they want to kill him, the next minute they want to save him, and then they want to kill him, you know, it goes back and forth uh, when they do speeches and so forth. So it's showing you the crowd. By the way, Shakespeare was very influenced by the biblical worldview. That's why his, his stories are so powerful about human nature. But, but yeah, so, the, uh, so, so how does that affect us today? Because we have that story of Jesus wrongfully being persecuted, not by God. Because again, if this is mythology, it would say Zeus came to the world one day and he saw a evil god who had poisoned all the people, and he smote him out of the way, and then the whole world came back to order. But no, this is a gritty news report. We get details, we get names, we get very embarrassing events about the people who are reporting this happened. All the disciples look really bad. They don't look good. So it's very grittily realistic. Their hero, Peter, is an absolute coward. And joins the mob by not standing up for his his friend when when they ask him, do you know this guy? I don't know anything to do with this guy, and and so that's what we would do, and so it's it's showing you a mirror to what humans do, and then whenever that story spreads, it infects the fake news technology of myth, and its might makes right governments, it infects them, but because it's not like an autopilot thing, it's it. Jesus says that you are my body, meaning you got to live it out. You got to be the hands and feet of this happening in history. And so because Christians themselves are slow to wake up to it, just like everybody else, we have had a slow time fully getting a full grasp of what we were supposed to do with this, this good news that 
that Jesus is vindicated, that he's killed wrongfully by his community. He's scapegoated as a misfit, as an outcast. But then God is on his side. God's not on the side of the winner's crowd. He stayed on the side of the victim. You know, that's why we have movies like Edward Scissorhand, where this misfit is the hero. It's because it's the story of Jesus infecting our imagination. And so, so, so how does that affect us today? So that story spreads, and it slowly starts to undermine. So think of our sacrificial violence as like a nice, well-oiled machine. And this is like putting massive bubble gum or whatever you want to call it. It's mucking up the grinding of the machine. It doesn't work as well. It's falling apart. And so now that we are 2,000 years after this, we've had much more time in the West to be infected with this story. And people say, well, I wasn't affected. I was raised atheist. But you are living in the fishbowl of it. You know what I mean? You're living in people's legal theories of politics, and you're li- living in economic theories. You're, you're living within art that was shaped by Jesus. It's fully the, the fishbowl, the water of our fishbowl. And um, so whether you metaphysically believe Jesus is God or there is a God, you're still fully infected with Christianity if you're living in the West, especially. And so how does that affect us? Well, first of all, Remember what I said, that the power of the old scapegoat sacrifice of ancient times was that it unified the people when they had chaotic conflict, right? What do we see today in politics? It doesn't unify us anymore, does it? We, we want to we make our scapegoats, the politicians and the certain people, the rich or the poor, the blacks or the whites, the males or the females, the LB, LGBT or the opposites. We, we, we want to always try to get everybody to believe that some person or group is the worst of the worst and they need to take a hit so we can all get along. But we never can get it done. That's because of Jesus. He's destroying the power of these myth makers, the myth making process of humans, he's destroying it and allowing us to wake up to that. So we're having an identity crisis that's happening, and it's 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 happening faster and faster because our technology is becoming more and more advanced and decentralized. When we have smartphones that have uh, high speed internet access and Wi-Fi and cellular internet, and we have the ability to do a live stream HD of someone being uh, wrongfully arrested right? Mm-hmm. That's a new way of showing the gospel technology. It used to be you had one news source and it was the myth makers. It was the priests. And if they had accomplished their goal, then Jesus would have been written out of history. He would have been another monster or another whatever that, that was never even heard from and, and totally depersonalized, totally dehumanized. And you would have never heard it. But because he wasn't, because he was something beyond that, then now all we think about is the victim's perspective. And so the only way to get power in the West is to pretend to be a victim or, 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 pursue, or posture yourself as a victim or act like you're the biggest ally of victims. You see what I mean? And that's the only way you can get power. So these, these people are imitating the influence of Christianity, whether they know it or not. So that whole New York Times thing that they've come out called 1619, where they want to have a new founding moment of America and it's all about slavery, that's influenced by Christianity. They're not, they're not getting the right message because they're talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's stirring up vengeance rather than healing. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing is they're saying, no, we're going to create a new founding moment, 1619, when slaves were brought. And that's going to be the new mythology of America. And we're going to indict everybody, white men particularly, as the villain. They're the scapegoat. They caused all this. It's them, 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 them. And so they're not, they're, they're using half the gospel, which is 
you're you're recognizing people who have been awfully treated and brutally so. But then you're you're using that moment to then turn it back into, well, let's get somebody else. Let's get payback. And so in politics today, there's two ways of being uh, to try to continue to scapegoat. You can scapegoat in the classic way. Let's call that Coca-Cola classic, that scapegoat classic. That's when you say the winners should be the winners and the losers should be the losers. And you should just follow, obey the law, obey the police. Don't, you know, if, if you get tased, it's because you're mouthed off. Why don't you know mm-hmm. your role? Shut your mouth. That's the classic style. That's, that's what you see conservatives more tempted by that. And then the left is scapegoating in the name of victims. So they're, and, and they like to pretend to be the, the slain lamb of the world, the, the lamb of God. So, you know, oh, we're, we got to tear down the rich because their greed is going to destroy the planet. Or we got to tear down churches and, 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 and make them pay taxes because the, their statements about, you know, sexuality is going to harm people. Or we need to block Jordan Peterson from speaking at campuses because he will contaminate the, you know, the, the university with making people feel like, you know, hurt. So, so they've done the opposite. So both sides are still trying to scapegoat because they don't want to let go and obey Jesus's command that says, do not resist evil with violence, turn the other cheek. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the cross. That's the biggest statement of all. When he looks at his enemies and he says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. They just don't know what they're doing. And today, we still don't know what we're doing, but we should. <laughs> that's the way right. I see it. You know, so that's what a marijuana person represents. Let's get to the, the, this is the climax, right? The marijuana person, the person smoking marijuana or cannabis or using that is, is, a, is a scapegoat for other people's uh, addiction issues. People have addictions to food. They have addictions to work. They stay at work too long because they want to copy and beat the guy who's, uh, you know, the vice president or whoever. They want to mm-hmm. impress him. They want to be the cool one. They want to be the rich one. So they're so they're idolizing their neighbor, and it makes them worship work, or they or they or they worship their food choices, and they eat really awful food that changes their mental state, makes them depressed, makes them have mood swings, and so we all have little little problems with. Addiction. So we want to always select someone else and say, that person who's high all the time, they're the problem. They're the couch potato. That's why America's falling apart because we've got a bunch of pothead uh, couch potatoes who are just selling drugs and, and turning our neighborhoods into destruction. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how they feel better. It's a, it's, a, it's a vestige of that same scapegoat feeling. You know, my life sucks. I don't like my guy at work. I don't like my rival here. I don't like this person here. But you know what? We're not that pothead over there. Put him in jail forever. And that's why we have people in prison for life right now for being involved in the marijuana trade. Yeah, I was on a um, Facebook the other day, and there's a Facebook group called What's Happening Angelina County. And they were, somebody brought up the something about drugs. I mean, talking about, oh, drugs are ruining our community. What can we do about it? And you know, people were just, you would think listening to these people talk that people who abuse drugs, people, I mean, people that obviously need help if you're abusing drugs to the point of, you know, not being able to keep a job and everything, you've got some issues, but you would think that these are evil, terrible people who walk around the pitchfork trying to, you know, carry everyone away to eternal damnation. Right. Yeah, because that's 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 again that's the scapegoat and that, where you try to dehumanize your opponent because you want them to be the bearer of the problem, you know, because you have guilt in your own life and you have your own foibles and weaknesses and you want to channel them onto the back of somebody else because it always feels good 
you know, it's like this, you know, you're, you're squabbling with somebody because uh, you took their parking space and then you, you look over there and you say, look over there. Someone just shot somebody. Now, you don't care about the parking space anymore. You feel comparatively better because you can point fingers at somebody across the street and say what you've done. You know, look at them. They're the villain. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's we always do that. You know, and that's 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 how the that's how that's how the many binds themselves together on the backs of, of a someone else. And, and, and that's not my theory. That's in the Bible. Caiaphas, the high priest who leads the execution campaign against Jesus, says it is better that one man dies than the whole nation perish. And uh, that's the heart of politics right there. It's better that one man gets thrown in prison for life than the whole nation perish if everybody has freedom to use cannabis. So yeah. uh, it's better that it's better that we send a person who used an object that we're afraid of or whatever, or we use and we don't want to admit it, whatever that is. We're, we're going to send someone into a cage where they will be in the proximity of people who have actually murdered people, people who have been in seasoned gangs bashing people in with their fists and weapons, people who have assaulted people. And we're just going to put someone in there without any recourse to self-defense. They can't leave. If they try to leave, they'll get shot. If they want to protect themselves with a a sword or a gun, they will have no access to that unless they make a shank, but then they become part of the problem themselves just to survive. So we're Mm going to do the most satanic, wicked thing. In some ways, it's worse than the the, the human sacrifice of the old days. Yeah, at least, at least that, that was over. <laughs> yeah, they chopped your head off. I mean, if I mean the the Incas were pretty bad, they'd rip your heart out while you're alive. So that's pretty tough. I don't know. I don't know who would want to live. Would you want to live in prison for life, <laughs> or or that? I don't know. It's a yeah. hard one to say because the kind of torture that humans will do to you in there could be in some way worse. Uh, and, and that's the point: is we we are slow to change. We're slow to wake up to the obvious truth. Because we're afraid that if we stop scapegoating our rivals, they'll tear us apart. That's what we believe. So that's what a lot of conservatives are, are, are terrified. If we let people do drugs, they'll tear us apart. They'll, they'll get us. They'll, they'll be high and drive their cars all into our, our cars. And, and, or, or they'll, you know, they'll have more political power. And then they'll be able to get us. So we got to keep them marginalized so because they're keeping us marginalized. And the, and the gospel answer is everybody drop your scapegoat. The left has their classic scapegoats. It's a Christian. It's a, a white man. It's a rich person. It's someone who likes oil, you know, whatever it is. It's Russians now. They hate Russians for some reason because the TV told them to. They just hate Russians, even though they loved them when they were communists. That's funny. <laughs> you know, but you know they're like an ex, ex, uh, uh, you know, ex boyfriend or girlfriend who's angry at their partner for abandoning them. You know, come back to communism and then we'll love you. You know, that's what they sound like to me. But you know, we all have our scapegoats, but we all have to learn to just drop them. But we're afraid that if I drop my scapegoat, you'll have power over me. You'll have leverage over me. And that's the same. That's the thing I hear from conservative friends all the time. They say your stuff is great. But, you know, for now, we just need to use a little bit more government control to get the left subjugated. And then and then we can try that good stuff you want to do. That's, that's what they've been saying for thousands of years. Right. You know, they don't they always say that. Let me sacrifice one more. So guess what our drug is? Our drug is sacrifice. Our drug is collective violence. So I'm telling people just say no. Remember Nancy Reagan? Just say no. Just right. say no to the drug of government violence to solve your problems. So. That word sacrifice, you know, the pharmacos is where we get the pharmaceutical word, right? Pharmaceuticals where we get drug. That's where we, you know, 
pharmakos was the old Greek ritual of, of, of taking a misfit or a hunchback or someone who was sick and parading them around as the, as the common enemy of the people and then sending them off to die in the, in the desert or the wilderness. Oh, wow. So that's where we get the idea of pharmaceuticals. You know, pharmaceuticals, that, so the drug, the antidote to the chaos of the Greeks was to select a, a, a person for ridicule and then cast them out to die. And so that's what we see today in politics, right? So we're all fighting over who we want to scapegoat. And so the only answer is to stop it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't say stop it after, you know, this is, this is the sin of our time. I'll stop it after my rival stops it first. Nope, nope, stop the scapegoating, period. That's, yeah. the, that's Jesus's command. Stop it. Stop voting for people to send armed men and women to take your gun away, to take a drug away, to take your you know, income away, to take whatever away, stop doing that. And trust that Jesus is king and he's going to save the world when you do that. And that you will save one neighbor at a time. When you're on a jury duty, judge the moral character of the law. And then a lot of, a lot of Christians say, but Caesar, it says, render under Caesar. Well, here's the thing. Here's the way to look at that. One way to look at it. Caesar, right? is our declaration of independence in our constitution. And yeah. the founding fathers created a system in which we were told by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson to judge the moral character of the law itself. So our Caesar is saying, when we do it wrong, get it right. You, you execute moral condemnation through the jury system. That's what John Adams, Jefferson, and others said specifically about the jury system. So, you know, when Christians want to throw that line, obey Caesar, just go along, put your neighbor in a cage forever if you're on a jury duty, if they're nonviolent. No, you have the opportunity to say, wait a second, the founders who built this system, you know, you know, they have an operational manual about what they said they intended these things to be. Let me go look at the operational manual. Okay, I see their writings. They say actually the jury system can actually strike down immoral laws too. It's immoral for me to put my neighbor in a cage for one day. For mm-hmm. getting high. So if I can't do it for one day or one minute, I can't do it for a year or a two years or a hundred years or whatever. Can't do it. Sorry. So I'm going to take my little stone that I have in my hand and I'm going to let that stone go because I'm a jury member and I'm going to drop my stone and say not guilty because this is an unjust law. Just like the fugitive slave law, you're supposed to return to slaves or else, you know, they, they get, so you got to return to slaves. And if the slave leaves, you got to return them to the, to the master and have punishment. And the Christian said, you know what? I'm not going to throw my stone at this slave. This person should not have been in this situation. I'm going to say not guilty. And that's what the intended effect of the founding fathers was when they created the jury system. And so our Caesar, if you want to obey Caesar, Caesar tells you it's your duty to strike down laws that are against your moral conscience and against the moral and liberty foundation of our system. That's an excellent point about Jefferson and Madison endorsing jury nullification. Well, nullification, period, really. Right. So it's like, if you want to obey Caesar, our Caesar's saying, please fix us if we go crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so, I mean, you, you see, either way you cut it, and I'm all about, I believe, I, I believe in totally obeying all laws. And I say that with every, you know, everybody who asks me, obey the law. Always obey the law. Because when they come for your tunic, give them your, your cloak too. You know, when they come for your cloak, give them your tunic too, is what Jesus said. So that means don't, don't, don't resist it with aggression. Don't, don't, when, when bullies want to come and tell you, you know, hey, 
we've criminalized uh, selling raw milk. You know, follow the law, obey the law. That's fine. But also know that part of obeying the law in our case is a law called the Declaration of Independence, which is part of the U.S. Code. And it says, you know, it's your right and your duty to alter or abolish governments that become injurious to the means of liberty. And if you don't have a right to your life, you don't have a right to your, uh, what you put in your body and what you think, then you don't have liberty. So which means your government's injuring liberty, which means the, the system actually created a lawful way for you to correct that, which is the jury system and your vote. So don't vote for anybody that's going to continue to keep taking your liberty away. And, and, don't, and don't execute a law as a jury member when that execution is going to continue an unjust law that, that is not, not a moral law. And so if you are not, if you're a Christian and you're sitting on a jury duty or jury participation and you have to judge, well, this person is in your community and they were driving with a suspended license. You have to say to yourself, can I take that man by their hand or that woman by the hand and put them in the jail myself? Would, mm-hmm. Is that okay for me to do as a Christian? Is it okay for me to lock the door as they say, please tell my little son that I love him? Is that okay for you to do that? Is it okay for you to tell, uh, you know, go back home and say, hey, uh, sorry, honey, your, your dad's not coming home for a month or two because he, he was driving without Caesar's permission to, to drive. But what the heck is that? To, how are you a Christian if that's your way? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how can you even say you're following Jesus if that's you? <laughs> that's a mirror of sin. It's obvious Jesus is saying that. If you lead, listen to his word and, and not be you know, stuck on your, your idolatry of, of Caesar, Caesar gives us, this is what's so beautiful, is that our Caesar is so accommodating that it's actually given us lawful means of, 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 of keeping our faith in the midst of this empire and being able to say, you know what? Not guilty. You know, and, and, then, and then here's what you do. You, you go to that guy who, who had a suspended license and was driving on it, and you say, listen, Brother, you got to follow the law because you almost lost your whole family because, you know, you're, you're trying to rebel and, and, and you've got to obey the law. So here's my lesson for you. Don't do this again, but I'm not putting you in jail for a moment. You know what I mean? I'm not going to put mm-hmm. you in there for an hour. Okay. I wouldn't want to go there and I want my, my child to go there for not having a license or whatever. Why would I do that? I mean, this is where you have to get rid of the group think and look at the human being in front of you and say, why would I put them in a cage? I wouldn't put them in a cage. Wait, you squeeze milk from a from a cow and then you sold it to somebody. I'm not gonna put a gun in your face and put you in a in a, in a dungeon. Why would I do that? That would be a lie. Because what what you're doing there, here's another sin you're doing. You're bearing false witness against your neighbor. Because when you put your neighbor in a cage, you're implying that they're violent. Mm-hmm. You're implying that they're a person, they've done something that is warranting a timeout. <laughs> if you rape someone or assault someone or kill someone or try to steal. Put them in a timeout, okay? That's okay. I have problems with jail and prison the way they're done, but if we're going to have something like that, that's you put you put people who have done violent things there, right? Right. That's obvious for a Christian, you know. And and here's how you know what to do. Always just know what would it do if I had to carry out this law. So if you see someone being, if you see a little old lady being burglarized or, or stolen from, and you can get that attacker get out of here, and or if they try to come. You physically restrain them if you're capable. I know this is something that not, not everybody's capable to do this. But if you have the means to restrain them, there's nothing, there's nothing immoral about that. 
And if you have them, if you have that right as an individual, then you can also enshrine that as a right as the collective and say, we shall have a law saying if you steal or defraud someone, you go to jail. And if you, if you assault someone, you go to jail. But if you but if you sold raw milk, I would never go to my neighbor and say, hey, you just sold milk to a man. I'm going to put a gun to you and say, come to my dungeon where there's yeah. rapists and murderers. What the heck? That is so monstrous. It's it's you, you see when you when you just talk about it, it destroys it, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? Well, let me let me ask you this, David, because I, I talk to a lot of people who live in states where cannabis is not legal. And this is medicine that helps them with a medical condition, Crohn's disease, uh, thyroid condition. So as a Christian, does God expect you to follow man's law that would ultimately result in worse health or possibly even death if you if you don't disobey this law? Well, look, you have to make those choices for yourself. I believe we should follow the law. I believe we should obey the law because it always, you know, if you get caught, then you're going to separate your family and then you might be, you know, you know, you're going to have a lot of, you know, if you have a kid that doesn't have mommy or daddy home at night, that's a terror and that's hell. So I would recommend just doing other things that are healthy. So I have found, this is just my own personal, you know, uh, research that I've been doing in my media work is that people who adapt to a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, meat and animal products only, can heal a lot of the pain problems that they have. And so, you know, if, you, if, if you're living in an unjust world where, you, where you're not able to lawfully access this kind of product, then try another method. Try, try doing ketogenic or try doing what I would recommend, which is animal products only. I, I have a doctor who came on my show a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Chris Palmer, Harvard psychiatrist, who is curing depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, using a ketogenic diet. He gets people to get their carbs down to 20 carbs or lower. And he has a special way of monitoring what they're doing. And people who have schizophrenia are saying, I don't hear the voices anymore. Oh, wow. And so, you know, there's a lot of things and there's a lot of pain. People who have arthritis, people who have autoimmune disorders, look at Michaela Peterson, who's Jordan Peterson, the psychologist. That's his uh, daughter who's doing meat only. And she's been able to cure her vicious, vicious autoimmune disorders. And she doesn't have pain anymore and she can sleep. And a lot of people cure their sleep problems, their back aches, their pain problems. And it doesn't really require any substance. All you got to do is just eat animal products only. Eat, you know, beef. Some people can tolerate other animal products, but try to eliminate all plants and carbohydrates. And it, it'll take a week or so to adjust depending on how, how you know, addicted to carbohydrate and sugar your body is, but a lot of people have alleviated numerous things by by eliminating all plants out of their life. So I would try that as a as a remedy if you don't have lawful access to this cannabis medicine. Yeah, I mean, I would never encourage someone to break the law necessarily, but I just can't, you know, if, if somebody lives in a state where it's not legal and it's not it's not possible for them to to move to a state where it is, I just have a hard time saying, well, you have to die. <laughs> well, I wouldn't tell them that. They got to have their own life. Yeah, but I just, for my position, I would obey the law. You know what I'm saying? It's, is it, a, is it a, look, I mean, these things get into weird issues, right? Like it's against the law to wear a seat, I mean, to not wear a seatbelt, right? Right. But if you've got someone injured and, you're, and they've just busted their head on the sidewalk and you got to run them to the ER, you don't have time to think about a seatbelt. You get in a car and you go, right? Mm -hmm. it's, you might speed, which means you broke the law too, right? 
So I think, yeah, the spirit of that is is for people to use their conscience, right? Right. If you have a if you have a life or death situation, you have to use your conscience there, right? But but I, but as a rule of thumb, obey, uh, you know what what people you know the, what what Caesar is going to do because if, when they come for your cloak, give them your tunic too. And a lot of people would say, well, then I'll be naked. And then I think Jesus would say, well, that's the point, right? You know what I mean? You're shaming the power. You're shaming the power that's trying to use coercion to hurt you. So, you know, it's a tough situation. But, I mean, if you're telling me uh, that I think you're, I mean, not saying you're saying this, but I'll put it this way. I don't think you're sinning to, to, to speed past the speed limit and to not wear your seatbelt when you're taking someone to the ER. You know, I don't think anybody yeah. would... Would, and so you can use that as a as an example for other things. You know, if the law says turning your neighbor because they're they're a thought criminal, then you might have to use conscientious objection and object to that, right? And and everybody's going to have a different and 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 you know, there it's a complex topic because everybody's going to have a different threshold for what they'll tolerate. I, you know, but here's how you can do it. Here's one way to stop. Just don't vote for people who keep the laws on the books that keep your neighbor in suffering. You know, only mm-hmm. vote for people who are going to act like a Christian in office within their purview of their power. So if you're going to vote, vote for someone like Ron Paul, who said, I'm going to pardon every nonviolent person within federal jurisdiction. Okay. That's a Christian. Yeah. That, now you're acting like a Christian. I can vote for that because I'm voting for someone to do something that would be moral for me to do as an individual. But if you vote for someone that says, I'm going to lock up X, Y, and Z nonviolent people, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a green new energy deal and healthcare bills that are going to put all kinds of more coercion onto people's backs. Well, if it's wrong for you to do it as a person, it's still wrong if you hire somebody to do it for you. So don't vote for those people, which means, guess what? You're going to miss out on a lot of voting because there's not a lot of people running like Ron Paul. You know what right. I mean? And it's not about his and him as a person. It's about his, his stated objectives are ethically in alignment with being a, a Christian because he's saying, I'm not going to use... I'm not going to create new laws to use aggression against my neighbor. And so I'd say, okay, well, Jesus says don't resist evil with violence. So I can live in accordance with that and, 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 and sign on to your name being president because you're going to act in a Christian witness way with the power that you have with that. See, and that's, that's what I would say is a, you know, a way, to, way to live your, your, your imitation of Jesus in, in, in life, you know. What's the best way to get Christians on board with this way of life where you're not trying to enforce violence on nonviolent people? You have any suggestions there? Well, just read the Gospels and read the Bible. A lot of Christians, uh, you know, we, we just we just treat the story of, uh, of God as kind of a, you know, Again, an object that gives us a ticket to our, our our insider clique at church or whatever, or makes us feel like we're part of a of a clique or a movement. But we don't take it seriously. Just when you when you see when you see the life of Jesus, and you see that he can forgive his enemies even when they crucify him, then the least you could do is to not send your neighbor to ca- to a cage because they got high. <laughs> if you yeah. can't, it's just so it's it's almost like how do you, you know, once you see it. And it and it's scary because you think, goodness, so many people have read the Bible and they didn't see that. And I don't understand. It, it's just the power of evil, our desire to be our own little God that keeps millions of Christians from, you know, look, this whole world could be transformed if conservative Christians would start imitating Jesus fully mm-hmm. and start setting the captives free. 
If yeah. we set the captives free, guess what? That social ideolo- social justice stuff, that thing's going to wither away because it's only there because people are hungry for justice. They don't know where to look. And since the church isn't doing their job, they're creating their false little churches around them, right? So all the church has to do is just be, you know, just obey Jesus. He said, I've come to set the captives free. Uh, and, and start living that out. Stop the war. Stop the sanctions. Stop the foreign aid to dictators. Stop the the uh, you know use of uh, government control for healthcare. Stop the occupational licenses that destroy people's career paths. Stop the, the the personal vice laws and drug laws and all this stuff. Just stop it. Just say no. Just say no. Repent. Repent means change your mind. Stop doing what you're doing. And and that's a hard thing for people to do because they don't want to they don't want to let go of that. And um, it's just, it, it takes courage. It takes courage to, 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 to cast out fear, right? Because fear is what keeps us from doing anything like I've just described Jesus saying us to do. Fear is what says, you know what? I, I'm not going not gonna to try this Jesus thing. I'm terrified about what, what Jesus is actually about. So I'm just going to say, you know, I love Jesus and go to church, whatever. And just keep living my life in mimetic desire, envying our neighbors, copying them, being lost in debt. You know, that's another thing. Debt is an accumulation mm-hmm. of stuff that we get from desiring our neighbor. We need to stop trying to keep up with the Joneses and maybe we'll live a lot more frugal life. Maybe our life will have much more meaning and we'll have much more sanity because we won't be chasing all this stuff. And so wouldn't that be nice, by the way? If people who advocate free markets would criticize consumerism, wouldn't we be more of a, <laughs> a better witness? You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of these people would talk about, you know, oh, you guys are for free markets. You're for greed and, and buying stuff. And it's like, no, if you're if you're for free markets and you want to love Jesus, that means you're going to tell people, hey, don't be in debt. Stay out of stay out of credit card. Don't be accumulating debt. Don't don't be chasing after every object because it doesn't mean anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, and you know, we're, we're charged to be good stewards. And I think if our life revolves around getting more stuff and having the latest toy, then that, that reduces the amount of of money that we can give to, to fund projects that advance the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. which is where, which is where our treasures ought to be laid up. Not, not here on earth with the, the latest game or truck or car. Right. Well, it's a lot of work for us to get, get going on you know yeah between consumerism and uh and wanting to throw people in cages because we don't think they're as good as us that's a big downfall for a lot of christians i think well you you know that's the thing is that we the only way we can change is to let go of our scapegoats in our own life and we scapegoat politicians you know and let go of that and uh let go of of, uh, you know, wanting to blame other people for our problems, take responsibility for what we've done and, uh, you know, take responsibility for our, our feelings of guilt. Don't shift them onto somebody else. Don't shame other people and be the role model that you want to see in the world. And if other people, they'll, they'll mimic you, you know, if you mimetically desire bad stuff, other people will imitate you and desire those bad things. And if you want to imitate good things like love, forgiveness, respect, confidence, creativity, wonder, all the good stuff. You do that, other people will imitate you and do the same thing. And you'll win-win together. You won't be tearing each other apart. Where can people follow your work and see what you're up to? 
Well, I have a radio show in Orlando. It's on News Radio WFLA. It's called A Neighbor's Choice. It's an FM and AM program, but we post some of the episodes on my YouTube channel, which is just type in David Gronoski on YouTube. And then I have a new podcast that I want everybody to go and subscribe and like and rate and do all that. Called If you just look up David Gronoski Shows, you'll see the podcast on Apple and all the other major platforms and just subscribe to that. The program is called Things Hidden. It's a new podcast I'm doing and it's a separate from my radio show, which is called A Neighbor's Choice. Mm-hmm. A Neighbor's Choice is where I interview people who are in prison for life. They call into the radio show. They talk about life in prison. We talk about their, we, we interview their family members on radio. We interview politicians and economists and we interview scientists c- coming up with alternatives to the bad, you know, pharmaceutical stuff that keeps people sick. And uh, we just have a, a, a great time engaging the, the mass broadcast audience, people who listen to Rush Limbaugh and stuff like that. They get to hear this, this powerful message of, of the personhood revolution of Jesus. And then my uh, email is david at a neighbor's choice.com. So go to the podcast called Things Hidden. Start, uh, type in, I think, if, right now, I've got it titled David Gronoski Shows because it's a podcast feed that includes things hidden and my radio show. So there's two shows. Okay. Well, I'll put links to all that on the show notes for today's episode. And I appreciate you coming on and and, and sharing this information with us. I, I found it interesting and uh, hopefully the listeners will too. But if they don't, I did. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for having the discussion. All right. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Show notes for today's episode can be found out at, you guessed it, CannabisHealsMe.com slash 83. We'll be back here on Monday with another healing story. You guys have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments.